Hi, anyone and everyone. Uh, my name is Sam, and welcome to Have You Heard About This Case. We have a little bit of a different episode today. Kelly is unable to record with us, so I have called in my mom. So, hello, everybody. You want to give yourself a little bit of an introduction? Um, well, my name is Nancy. I have two amazing daughters, Samantha and Ash. Um, I live in northern Wisconsin, but I'm from the suburban Chicago area originally. And that's a big reason why I wanted to choose the case that we're going to talk about today, because it takes place where you grew up. Um, but before we get into that, since Kelly is unable to record with us today, I asked her if she wanted to ask the intro question. And she first said that she wants to thank you for jumping in since she's unable to be here. Oh, happy help. Uh, she also asked, and I'll just read it word for word, what she messaged me. Um, I would love to know what it's like raising two lovely ladies who became so successful. Did they grow up with true crime? <laughs> That's such a great question, Kelly. Yes. Um, it, what it was like raising my two daughters was amazing. We were um, kind of a corny family. Uh, we were very close. We Our entertainment was Sunday drives. Um, but yes, very much into true crime. Uh, I do remember, Sam, you just watching true crime all the time, sitting on your bed with your laptop um, in the summer, especially in the morning, watching a lot of that stuff. So yeah, we definitely were a true crime family. Yeah, I know um, Ashley and I would watch it early because... Unsolved Mysteries would start at like 8 a.m. And Ashley and I would be up yeah. watching Unsolved Mysteries on like Lifetime Network or something. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, we always had full cable, so you had whatever you wanted. <laughs> um, but let's go ahead and dive into this case. Um, this will probably end up being a two-part episode just because there's a lot of information. But I really wanted to talk about a case that you'd be familiar with. Um, because this actually took place exactly where you grew up. I know we'll talk about it later, but yeah. you mentioned you went to one of these locations all the time when you were younger. Yes. Yep. Um, so we will be covering the Tylenol poisonings in 1982 in the suburbs of Chicago. But first, I kind of want to go into what Tylenol is. And I think a lot of us are familiar with Tylenol, but I want to discuss the history of it. And according to the American Chemical Society, Tylenol is acetaminophen, and it was first created by H.N. Morse in 1878. And something that's really kind of crazy to me during my research is that I found an article that the American Chemical Society linked on their page that led to chemical and engineering news. And they said that scientists are unsure really exactly how acetaminophen works. Yeah, isn't that crazy that they don't know? It, it kind of blew my mind where it's like, yeah, it, it has a lot I, of dangers, but it's I'm so common. Well, I live on Tylenol. I take a lot of Tylenol every day. It, it has a lot of benefits, obviously. It, it can just be something that you can take over the counter for common flu or cold but it's also in prescribed medications such as vicodin so it has like yes. a wide ranging variety of uses mm -hmm. it does 
unfortunately have the ability to cause liver damage. And it has the ability to be deadly, but according to ProPublica, which is a, a nonprofit newsroom, there's an average of 150 deaths reported in, in the United States due to acetaminophen each year. Um, when you think about like in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's a pretty low number. Yeah, it is, actually. And there's there's probably a lot of other deaths that are partially attributed to acetaminophen, um, at least in some way, but that isn't the official cause of death. Right, right. Like if it weakens their liver or something. Exactly. And Tylenol, the company, was created in 1955 by McNeil Laboratories. And this was a family company. It was two brothers who took over McNeil Laboratories from their father. And shortly after that, they created Tylenol. And it is derived from N-ace... I don't know if I can say this. <laughs> I don't know if you can say that either. <laughs> N-acetylparaminophenol. Oh, good job. Something like that. Yeah, you did it. And Tylenol is just a, a common pain reliever. And it can reduce fever. It can relieve symptoms of common headaches or colds or flus. Originally, McNeil Laboratories was marketed, marketed Tylenol to children as an aspirin-free medication. Yes. And most of us recognize like the red cap on Tylenol bottles. And since it was initially marketed for children, they wanted their branding to represent a fire truck. And their original slogan was for little hotheads. <laughs> oh, for fever, little hotheads. Mm -hmm. Oh, get it. Oh, and especially funny. like an aspirin-free medication when, better for kids. Yeah, when I was a kid, it was baby aspirin. It was like that chewable mm -hmm. orange stuff, Yeah, um, which turned out to be pretty bad for you. So I raised you guys on acetaminophen, but I didn't give you a lot of that stuff. But Yeah, well, it was the it. safer alternative. Mm -hmm. to it yeah so then in yeah. 1959 johnson and johnson purchased mcneil laboratories and then that's when the drug became widely available to sell over the counter yeah and so into our case in 1982 nearly every household had tylenol in their medicine cabinets and the residents of elk Grove village weren't really any exception Mary Kellerman was 12 years old in 1982, and she woke up the, on the morning of September 29th not feeling well. She had a runny nose, a headache, and a sore throat. So her dad gave her some extra, tank, extra strength Tylenol after Mary had convinced him that she was too sick to go to school. <laughs> and Mary was born on March 9th, 1970, and she was the only child of Dennis and Jenna Kellerman. As an only child, she was very close to her parents. She loved to cook with her mom and play Atari with her dad. And her parents really helped nurture her interests, um, specifically with horses, by getting her a pony. And after she showed some interest in guitar, they signed her up for guitar lessons. And Mary was in the seventh grade at Adams Junior High School when she made a name for herself in her own neighborhood as a really great babysitter within the last year. Sounds like a pretty cool kid. Right? 
Yeah, yeah, sad. So Mary's mom, Jenna, picked up an, a bottle of extra strength, extra strength Tylenol on the evening of September 28th from Jewel, which is a local grocery store in the Chicago area. And, at, and this Jewel was at the corner of Arlington Heights Road and is it Besterfield? Like, Beast, it's Beasterfield Road. All right. In the corner of Arlington yep. Heights Road and Beasterfield Road. Beasterfield Road. Mm-hmm. And it was out of this new bottle that Mary's dad gave her one extra strength, extra strength Tylenol on the morning of September 29th, shortly before 7 a.m. A few minutes later, Mary collapsed on the floor of her bathroom. Her father called an ambulance and he also called Jenna who she was already at work that morning. So Jenna hopped back in the car and she arrived home as the paramedics were loading Mary into the ambulance and they rushed her to Alexian Brothers Medical Center in Elk Grove Village. And unfortunately, by 9.56 a.m., Mary was pronounced dead. And initially it was believed that Mary had a stroke, but it wasn't until the autopsy in addition to discovering more victims, that Mary's death would later be determined to be a murder. That's just crazy. And a stroke at 12 years old. Exactly. And I, I was yeah. surprised. There, there's a few. We'll, we'll go through them. Unfortunately, there's many victims here. But yeah. a couple of them were diagnosed with a stroke or heart failure. And some just weren't. Um, so it was really interesting, like, to have the first victim be diagnosed with a stroke at 12 years old. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that those doctors were just really scratching their head, like, holy cow. Well, we'll, we'll get to the doctors. One of, one of the doctors um, who helped our next victim specifically uh, was very impressive with kind of his thought process and what he did to figure out what was happening to these people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to even think of how do you even begin to figure it out and do the background checks and um, the tracing of everything they did before it happened. It's kind of, we'll, we'll get into a lot of it. It was very interesting to read how they figured all of this out in a very, very short period of time. Um, But before we get too far into the case, I do want to mention Christy Gutkowski and Stacey St. Clair from the Chicago Tribune have done so much research on this case, and they've put together a really fantastic group of articles, and they've done a podcast on this um, called Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders. And I highly recommend it to anyone. It goes much more in depth than what we will within these next two episodes. Um, so I, I definitely recommend anyone check it out who's kind of interested in this story. Yeah, that'll be a good one to listen to. Yeah, they started doing it during the pandemic. And I ha- I didn't re-listen to it for this research. Um, I wanted to more so rely on articles through all of this. And I think it's six or eight episodes. But they they filed a bunch of Freedom of Information Act requests and got a ton of information that they released to the public. But our next victim, Adam Janis, 
was born on March, was born in early March on ni- in 1955 in Tarn- Tarnow, Poland. And when Adam was eight years old, he moved to the States with his family after his father revu- refused to join the Communist Party. And after growing up here, Adam married a woman named Teresa, who he actually met while he was back visiting Poland. So she moved to the States with him, and they settled in Arlington Heights, Illinois. And this is about less than 10 miles from Elk Grove Village, so you kind of have a retrospective yep, how right close. Ne- yeah, right next door, yep. Yeah, some of, some of our victims will be further away, but they these two in particular are incredibly close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is my neighborhood. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know this one in particular is is where you exactly were, really. Yes, yep. That was, um, well, we'll get there, but that was the store I grocery shopped at with my mom all my life. Yeah, and then later uh, went back because she lived next door to it for many yeah, years. she did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Adam and Teresa had two kids together named Kathy and Thomas. And in a Chicago Tribune article, Teresa reflected on how her husband was always happy and how he was a great father who loved playing with his kids. And Adam wasn't feeling well on September 28th. He told his wife that he was starting to feel some chest pains. And so the next day he decided that he was going to stay off, stay home from work on September 29th. That morning, he still wasn't feeling great. But he was feeling well enough to do some errands with his wife and his son. And then later that day, Adam went to pick up his daughter from preschool and stopped at a jewel on his way home on Vale Avenue in Arlington Heights, which is exactly where you were saying. Yeah, that is my jewel. Yes. And he stopped to pick up some groceries in addition to a bottle of extra strength Tylenol since he wasn't feeling well. And shortly after Adam arrived home, he took two extra strength Tylenol. And moments later, Teresa saw Adam exit the bathroom and he was complaining of severe chest pains. He was clutching his chest and struggling to breathe. And Teresa noticed that his eyes were fixed and dilated. And how scary that had to be. Oh, I'm sure all of this, all of this had to be yeah. incredibly yeah. scary. Like what You don't know what to do, you know. And it happens nearly immediately after taking the pills. Yeah. And he had complained the day before of chest pain. So I'm sure she's, you know, no one's thinking that it's in the medicine he took to make himself feel better. Exactly. Sa- same with Mary Kellerman. Yeah. Like, yeah, you have no clue what it is. You, the medicine's supposed to help you. Not yeah, you think you. it's the illness. Yeah, the illness that did it, not the medicine. That's mm-hmm. just, just heartbreaking. <laughs> right. And at this moment, Teresa saw her neighbors were outside, and she ran out because she knew one of them was a nurse who spoke Polish. And remember, they're both Polish immigrants, so having that ability was a big benefit, especially while trying to explain medical needs, because they don't have to... Yeah essentially translate in their head to English. Right. Yeah. And so the two neighbors ran into Adam and Teresa's home and the nurse immediately started to apply chest compressions while the other neighbor called the ambulance. The paramedics and doctors did everything they could 
to save Adam, but unfortunately he was pronounced dead at 3.15 p.m. on September 29th, less than five hours after Mary's death. But now this is a different fire department and paramedics and a whole different team. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is a, a reason why immediately these same exact symptoms weren't connected. It, they didn't go to the same hospital. Right. They didn't have the same first responders. Yeah. Even though they lived very close to each other, different hospital, different responders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And while doctors thought that Mary's death was potentially a stroke, doctors didn't really have many theories when it came to what killed Adam. And they were reluctant to make comments until an autopsy was conducted. But they said if they needed to put out a theory, their only guess would be that it would be potentially heart failure or a brain injury. But they were not confident in those statements. And Yeah, it's, it's just a guess. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of times in things like that, especially when it's someone young, an autopsy is needed because you need to figure out the details of what had happened. Right, right, definitely. And Adam's immediate family were called to the hospital and notified about his sudden death. Adam's parents and his youngest brother all decided to go back to Teresa's home to help support her. And Adam's brother Stanley, who initially wanted to return to his home so that he could be with his wife, said that he was suffering a little bit of back pain, um, but he didn't want to deal with this while he was grieving his brother's death, and his mother very much insisted that he come back to Teresa's home with them as a family. Yeah, you want to be together as a family. Too bad his wife couldn't be there, too. Well, his wife did end up coming. Um, So I believe they were from Wheaton. I didn't put that in my notes, so that's a little further in the, the western suburbs. Um, So she drove up from their home, and this is the same home where uh, Adam had passed away earlier or had collapsed earlier um, where the ambulance arrived. And so after uh, Stanley's wife arrived, um, at this point, they were only married for three months, and they honeymooned in Hawaii after their wedding. And... They were working on remodeling a home that they purchased in Lyle. Okay, it wasn't Wheaton, it was Lyle. Oh, Lyle. Okay, which is right close to Wheaton. Mm-hmm. And they actually purchased this ha- house right across the street from Terry's parents. And I think this might have been part of the reason why his back was hurting, because they were remodeling this themselves. I could be wrong, but I saw a couple oh, I've been of there. comments about that. <laughs> Yes, I have back pain right now because we're doing work on our home. <laughs> but so, yeah, he, he was feeling this back pain. He decided to take the exercise strength Tylenol. And he asked if anyone else needed anything because a lot of people, understandably, they've been upset and crying all day in this family. They have headaches. Yes. And the only person who took him up on the offer of taking the extra, extra strength Tylenol was his wife. Terry. She said that she had been battling a headache all day and that she could really use some medicine to make it go away. Moments later, Stanley said that he was feeling bad and started to clutch his chest. His older brother, who had had arrived at this point, caught Stanley as he started to collapse to the ground. Hmm. 
and Terry was right behind Stanley, also complaining about chest pains. At this point, Teresa immediately grabbed her two kids and ran them over to the neighbor's house because unfortunately she had seen all of these symptoms just hours before when Adam collapsed. Can you imagine? It's like deja vu. It's the same thing. Oh, it's... And we'll post a, a photo of their memorial service. They had three caskets lined up at their memorial service. Um, It looked beautiful, but at the same time, you know what's happening and you know the grief that this whole family has to be feeling. Yeah. And so... Yeah, really scary. (laughs) Really scary. It's kind of like, I I grew up hearing this story. Obviously, I lived in this area for quite a few years before moving to Wisconsin. Um, I was very familiar with this at a pretty young age, but it is crazy to like dive into this research deeper and see how impactful all of this really was. Very much impactful. And what's weird for me is um, I do remember this all happening and I remember it being on the news, but I don't remember it being in my neighborhood. It, you you it's probably saw it in other neighborhoods because there's, there's a lot of other neighborhoods this impacts as well so you may have just seen yeah that well in in 1982 i was um i had just graduated high school at that time i you know in the spring so i was you know into my life and working my 40-hour job and you know um i think that in 82 my husband now who i was was my boyfriend back then um was probably away at school Mm -hmm. so you know, I was just working full time and nose to the grindstone and making as much money as I could at that point. Well, so I don't said, think I watched a lot of news. You also said that you weren't living in Arlington Heights at that point. Correct. And you weren't going Correct. to that jewel like you used to be going to. Correct. We um, we had I had moved away from there um, in 79, but I only moved 10 miles away. Um, so I still was in the Arlington area. Um, but I didn't go to the school there, and, but I kept my friends from there, so I still that was still my stomping ground. Um, but I, that wasn't my everyday jewel, like it was when I was younger. Right, and when you're in the suburbs of Chicago, there's jewel every mile. So, <laughs> yeah. yep. yep. If you move a short distance away, there's a whole new everything for you. Yes, exactly. So when the fire department received two medical calls for the same house just hours apart, they made the decision to send their bigger trucks and more people from the rescue squad to respond. And when they arrived, Stanley was on the floor and it was incredibly apparent that Stanley is suffering from the same exact thing that killed his brother hours earlier. Hmm. And... While paramedics were trying to save Stanley, this is when Terry collapsed. The first responders and paramedics believed that it potentially was because of shock. But when they turned her over to give her the care that she needed, they realized that this was a whole lot more than shock causing her to pass out. And authorities had no idea what was happening in the Janice home. But they wanted to be prepared for the worst. So they loaded everyone up, all of the family, 
that was there into different police cars and took everyone to the hospital. And they also warned the hospital before arriving that they needed to be isolated in the event that whatever was causing the sudden collapse of multiple family members could be airborne. Yeah, so they probably had to set up a separate entrance and get them right into a separate area where to keep everyone else in the hospital from being at risk. Yeah, I don't know if they had a separate entrance. I didn't see that in any of the articles, but they did basically like isolate them in this like family conference room where they weren't allowed to go out, talk to anybody um, while uh, Stanley and Terry were immediately being evaluated and they can then follow up and be evaluated after. Mm-hmm. Um, and they probably went to Northwest Hospital in Arlington. That was my um, assumption, but I didn't yeah. see it specifically stated. It just says they were taken to the hospital. But I thought most that, likely, that they were taken to Northwest as well. Yeah, most likely. And that's where I was born, and that's where you were born, and Ashley was born. Right. So, yeah, we were all born there. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so as the family were arriving in ambulance in the police cars, the doctors, the doctor who tried his best to save Adam Janice's life just hours earlier, Dr. Kim, was getting ready to leave after his shift. And Dr. Kim initially says that he assumed they had a medical emergency that was brought on by grief, which is what the paramedics kind of initially assumed with Terry. But once he heard that it was the same symptoms as Adam, he refused to leave after his shift. He, he felt the need to continue to figure out what this is and try to save their mm-hmm. lives. Hmm. Good doctor. He, he does some pretty incredible things coming up here. Yeah. And while authorities haven't connected Mary de- Mary's death to Adam's or Stanley and Terry's sudden chest pains, shallow breath, and them collapsing, it was clear that something connected the symptoms between Adam, Stanley, and Terry. And they kept the whole family under quarantine in this conference room while Dr. Kim and additional emergency room staff were trying to stabilize Stanley and Terry. By 10 p.m. that night, Stanley had died and Terry was on life support without any expectation that she would survive. Hmm. And at this point, Dr. Kim started to formulate a theory of what was causing this to happen to the Janice family. And he believed it wasn't airborne, but in turn, it was ingested. Mm-hmm. And so now let's backtrack a little bit to the afternoon of September 29th at 3.45 p.m. Mary Lynn Reiner was getting ready to feed her baby, who at this point was only six days old. And she had a bad headache and decided to take some extra strength Tylenol that she had purchased earlier that day, which her doctor had recommended for her headaches. She lived in Winfield, which is a western suburb of Chicago, and about 20 miles from Elk Grove Village. And I'm, I'm unsure exactly where Mary bought the Tylenol. The Tribune filed a Freedom of Information Act request for Mary's case file, but they were told that her original case file was lost in a flood. So unfortunately, we don't have a ton of information 
mm. on Mary Lynn as we do with some of the other victims. Yep, that happens. And immediately after taking the Tylenol, Mary felt dizzy. And then she collapsed on the kitchen floor and started to have seizures. Hmm. Her husband called the police. And after the ambulance had arrived, Mary Lynn's husband had to do everything he could to help his wife while also having to protect their other children who were upstairs and he didn't want them to see his mother suffer from this sudden medical emergency. Yes, that's traumatic to see your parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Mary Lynn was taken to the hospital where she was on life support and she died the following day. And then at 6.45 p.m. on the evening of the 29th, Mary McFarland, we have a lot of Marys, I'm trying to keep yeah, them straight. Yeah, there's a lot of Marys, very popular name at the time. Um, but Mary McFarland was at the Yorktown Shopping Mall in Lombard, Illinois. And Mary had divorced her husband in 1980, which left her as a single mother of two sons. She felt like she was just starting to recently get her life back together after the divorce. And she was working at Illinois Bell Telephone in the Yorktown Mall. She had recently... I remember those stores. (laughs) (laughs) See, I remember Yorktown from when I worked in malls. Yeah. Ugh, remember malls? Yeah, I'm glad I don't work in malls anymore. (laughs) Me too. Um, And she was really excited. She was starting to date somebody new. And... Mary's two young sons meant the world to her. And it sounds like she was uh, excited to introduce her new boyfriend to her kids. And she really liked her job at Illinois Bell Telephone because it allowed her to spend as much time as possible with her kids while still bringing in a steady income. Because at that point, Illinois Bell Telephone was a union job. And so she was Uh-oh. able to have a very steady income with that. Mm-hmm. And she was on dinner break. Um, and so she went to go eat with her friend Jan. And then after their dinner, they just returned to the store to clock back in. And Mary said that she had a headache. So she ducked into the back room to take some medicine that she had in her purse. And less than 10 minutes later, Mary told her co-workers that she wasn't feeling well, and then she collapsed. Her co-workers attempted CPR while waiting on the ambulance to arrive. And once the EMTs arrived, they asked her co-workers if she had taken anything. And one of the co-workers who was in the back room with Mary when she took the Tylenol immediately informed the EMTs. And Mary was taken to Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove. But unfortunately, they were unable to save Mary and she never regained consciousness. And her family was initially told that she had a massive stroke. And that is what caused her death. You know, it's crazy. The quickness that the drug did Mm -hmm. to them. I mean, it was minutes. It's incredibly fast. So, um, they must have, it must have been on the, like, topical on those pills, not in the pill. I do believe it was in the pill. I actually, we'll post a photo on our social media, um, and 
it actually shows two pills broken open, one with regular Tylenol inside and one with the cyanide inside. So huh. that really makes me think that it was the powder inside of the pill. But there's a good possibility that there's even powder on the outside of the pill just because it was opened and repackaged. Well, that's that's what, where I was going to go next is the opening and repackaging and to conceal it and make it look like it's still a brand new thing on the shelf at a store. At this point, it was very easy to do that. Um, there was no tamper-proof packaging well, back true. then. This is yeah. actually what created tamper-proof packaging. Yeah, at that I do remember that happening. And it was like there was a lot of talk on the news about how things had to be changed and made safe for consumers. Mm -hmm. This was like the catalyst that pushed that all into motion. Yeah. And before... That was big news. Yeah, it was... It changed everything, really. Yeah. There's a lot that this case changed for our own country and a lot of things that that really had to update because of this case. Um, But I know at that point, when I was reading the article, it... All Tylenol was was the pill bottle in a cardboard box and the top of the bottle. It doesn't even seem like it had child proof where you have to like push down and turn. It was just a cap you no, t- I don't... turned off. Yeah. I think it was just a screw top. Mm-hmm. And then there was no seal on it, but it had a cotton ball on the top. Yeah. So yeah. anyone who wanted to buy those pills could easily just get a box open the pill capsules, refill them with the cyanide and put it right back on the shelf with no one even knowing. Yeah. Wow, it's diabolical. <laughs> it, it, this case, in mo- I think a lot of people are f- quite familiar with this case. It's unsolved. And yeah, yeah. It's, they, they, they think they have a suspect, but there was no charges filed or conviction or anything like that so really this case is very much unsolved and it's mind-blowing to me yeah yeah that's scary really scary that anybody would be like that horrible right (laughs) to other humans exactly these are humans i don't know i get frustrated when people are mean to other humans (laughs) well it's also like with this what's the most mind-blowing to me is how random it all is like you can't be targeting people you can't like what message are you sending by doing this because there has to be a message right like well there doesn't really because with this particular guy because or person um he didn't target a specific person he didn't um claim credit or well, you know, like even the Unabomber of. wrote wrote letters and, you know. That, well, we'll get a lot of that into episode two. Okay. And I don't know at all. There so. is a letter. <laughs> oh, there is. There is a letter. Okay. And right. I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll get into all of that in episode two um, because the investigation, we'll, we'll start the investigation in this episode and then we'll get to the suspects in the next episode. Um but there was definitely a letter that was sent. And there, there's a lot of theories whether this was a target of Johnson & Johnson or one of their subsidiaries because they're kind of an umbrella company. Um, mm. So there, there's a lot of different theories out there. on because Somebody doesn't 
do this like they could they they could but somebody doesn't do this without a, an end goal in mind and right like, what is that end goal is it something that's on the corporate level is it something on a local level yeah corporate level sounds logical at this point you know that i don't that i don't know a lot about this case even though i lived through it <laughs> Well, the, the research on this case is, I, I was expecting this to be one episode. There's no way. There's no <laughs> way I can do it in one. Yeah. Um, I, it, it is weird, though, that I was right there and I didn't know a lot about this. Well, we, we talked about this a lot when an episode we did a couple weeks ago with um, uh, Susan Abington oh, and Yvonne yeah, Bender. Yeah, the, the girls. Yes. I think that news and, was just different and the consumption of news was different. Because I agree. you got like specifically dad, he literally grew up down the street where that happened. Yes. Yes. And and we didn't know any of it. Yeah, they went he they went to neighboring schools as dad. They were one year ahead of him in school. Yeah. Um I just think the consumption of news was so different back then. It was. It was. And if you didn't sit down at six o'clock and watch the news or five o'clock for the local, you mm-hmm. didn't get to see it. Exactly. <laughs> or you watched it at 10 and, you know, maybe you're in bed by then. So it wasn't like the available news we have now. It's yeah. So not at our fingertips every second of the day. Yeah. yeah. But back to September 29th at 8.43 p.m. Paula Price was returning home. She was a United flight attendant, and she was returning to Chicago from two back-to-back flights that she worked that day. One was coming from Las Vegas to Chicago, and then she hopped on another flight that was a round-trip flight to Hartford, Connecticut. So she had a very long day, and she was getting ready to leave the airport to go to her apartment in Old Town in the city of Chicago, when she saw that a friend of hers, who was also a flight attendant, who also lived in the same building as Paula, was finishing up a flight, but she wasn't going to land until an hour later. So she made the decision. She just wanted to go home. She didn't want to wait that hour for her. But she made, she'd left a note at her, on her um, mailbox in the airport um, just saying hey, we should meet up for drinks later. I have some exciting news to tell you. Hmm. And at 9.16 p.m., Paula stopped at a Walgreens in Old Town, which was near her apartment. And this is actually a Walgreens that I used to go to all the time because it was on my route to work. Yeah. And she purchased a bottle of extra, extra strength Tylenol. And we actually have security footage of this, of her checking out at the register. Um, So we'll add that to our Instagram as well. And she gets home. She's starting to wind down for the night. She puts on a nightgown. She's removing her makeup. And she took one of the pills from this new Tylenol bottle. And then two days later, Regula Levengood and Paula's sister found Paula in her apartment dead after two days and she took one pill she took one pill holy moly mm-hmm the, what was well well i have some 
details further on in my script here, but the amounts that were added to these pills would have been deadly with a fraction of what they put in. That's what I was going to ask about that. If if they had the rest of what was in the bottle, was it every pill no. in the bottles? It was there. The bottles varied. So like some had like two or three pills. Some had up to like seven pills that were tainted with cyanide. And if they're huh. kind of unsure how many bottles were poisoned because there was such a push to recall all of the bottles and a scare of like, if you have this in your house, just get rid of it. So yes, they had a handful turned in, but not all of them. Yeah, I remember having to throw them out. I remember the empty shelves in the stores. Mm-hmm. Um, that they, you know, it was a big recall. And it was a long time before Tylenol came back on the shelves, if I remember. Yeah, they there was first it was a local recall and then it was a nationwide recall. And I actually have like a um, the image that they used for the recall that they put on the news, which, again, we'll post on Instagram. Um, but yeah, it was and it started with the extra strength Tylenol. It started with a specific batch of the Tylenol because they determined that two of the victims purchase bottles out of the same batch but then it spread nationwide after that hmm. so we here yeah. we have a total of seven deaths that are all related to the extra strength tylenol but with some of these deaths initially being attributed to massive heart failure they weren't connected to each other immediately the first person to start connecting the dots was Arlington Heights Fire Department Lieutenant Chuck Kramer. And Chuck was the lieutenant who responded to the Janus home twice in one day. And Chuck and his fire crew were returning to the firehouse and he told the 911 dispatcher that his fire station was going to be out of commission until further notice. And Another lieutenant from Arlington Heights Fire Department who was off that day, Phil Capitelli, he was actually listening to his scanner at home. And he heard Chuck informing the 911 dispatcher that his trucks would be out of commission. And Phil wanted to know why Chuck would make this call. So he just made the decision to call the fire station and see if he could get more details out of Chuck. So while Phil and Chuck are talking, Chuck let him know about this mysterious illness that impacted three members of the Janice family at this point, killing one of them. And Chuck mentioned to Phil that they took the extra strength Tylenol and Phil immediately recalled Mary Kellerman's death earlier that day. And since Phil had the day off, he was listening to the scanner basically all day and he heard that dispatch call to 911 from Elk Grove Village Fire Department. Hmm. So he really started to realize that this was not an isolated incident with the Janice family and that someone potentially was purposely poisoning Tylenol bottles. No. That's just mind-boggling. Well, what's kind of crazy to me is like this kind of like it's really a nosy phone call. (laughs) It's what, what well, he it kind of sounds like he was kind of, maybe he was a little bit of a busybody, but just because he had his scanner on all day. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
So it's like kind of like, oh, I heard this. What's going on? I'm interested. I'm bored. Yeah. And it turned out to and, be a major know, benefit. Yeah. It was, thank goodness he was nosy. But, you know, maybe he was just trying to, you know, help his buddies out. Well, yeah, I think also when you're you're part of a fire department and like we kind of know this because Ashley and her husband are part of a fire department. Um, and we have a lot of firemen in our family. Yeah. Well, it's a very close knit community of people. It, it is a family of people. It's, oh, for sure. They really are very, very close and they depend on each other. And um, I can see that listening to the scanner all day it might just be on in the background while he's doing a million other things you know in all likelihood it probably is and chances are in elk grove and arlington heights the scanner is not super super active you know there's probably not this was a wednesday this was like middle of the week so it, it probably was weird for him first off to hear a call early in the morning for a 12 year old girl and yeah. then hear that his fire department was shutting down for the day. That's a lot of curiosity mm-hmm. there. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's alarming. Mm-hmm. So I get that. So Chuck started to make phone calls to compare the symptoms that he witnessed from the Janice family with Mary Kellerman's symptoms. And once he confirmed that these symptoms were essentially all the same, he called the hospital and he talked to Dr. Kim. And initially, the hospital didn't think that Tylenol was the issue just because they're thinking that it's Tylenol, acetaminophen, not something else. And they didn't really see the connection between the known victims at that point. Right. And they have no idea that there's cyanide in those Tylenol pills. Exactly. Like, Tylenol would not cause any of those symptoms. It it can cause liver failure, but that's not what they were all experiencing here. Yeah. And so they they knew that they needed to find the source of what these symptoms were. And Dr. Kim just he really racked his brain. He searched through textbooks. And remember, he was supposed to clock out hours ago at this point. Oh, that's right. So he's just he wants to say he wants to figure this out. He knows that something is wrong. And so he he was searching through textbooks. He was consulting with colleagues and he eventually just had this realization that there's one substance that does account for all of these symptoms, and it is cyanide. And this is late evening at this point, if not closer to the middle of the night. And Dr. Kim, he didn't want to wait for any answers. He wanted to know now what was happening. And he's still at the hospital. And at this point, I believe that minimally Terry was still alive and on life support. Stanley may have also been. It didn't clarify that. But he actually drew blood from the both of them. And he found a lab that would test for cyanide in Highland Park, which is about 17 minutes, 17 miles away from where he was Mm -hmm. at his hospital. And he actually hailed a cab and instructed the cab driver to deliver the vials to this lab in Highland Park and watch the cab drive away, hoping they would get there. Holy cow, that's a risk. But he he didn't want to waste any time. He wanted to get these to the lab as quickly as he could um, because his hospital didn't have the ability to test for cyanide. So he had to find this 24-hour lab that could. 
and they probably didn't have like a medical transport vehicle you know back then exactly they had that stuff yeah yeah so imagine just being that cab driver being handed two vials of blood and say go yeah this is important (laughs) go yeah crazy um, two of the Tylenol bottles that were turned into an investigator at the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, um, Nicholas Pichos, I think I think that's how you say his name. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but Nicholas called his boss, Doctor Edmund Donahue, who instructed Nicholas to smell the bottles, and both bottles had a strong almond scent which almond is scent, yeah. common with cyanide and actually i believe it's one in three or two in three something like that people actually smell almonds um it is a trait that you have if you have the ability to smell almonds and cyanide and not everyone does so huh. luckily nicholas did and the cook county oh. medical examiner's office called in Cook County's chief toxicologist to work through the night testing the remaining pills. Out of these two bottles, four of the 44 pills contained high levels of cyanide, and each poison pill contained three amount, three times the amount needed to kill somebody. So is that kind of crazy that... Um... Those pill, those bottles were bought all at the same time, and that they actually took the pills that were tainted, all in that first couple of days. The well, I mean, this, it could have gone on for months. Yeah, there's a lot to it, and we'll we'll get more into it probably in the next episode. But um, one thing that's really interesting to me is buying the bottles isn't as surprising to me because I have a couple theories on that. But taking those specific pills is incredibly surprising to me because 44 pills, four contained cyanide. And obviously a couple more contained cyanide because they were already taken. Um, But my theory is, and this isn't really, this is just my theory. It's not really documented anywhere with this. But whoever did this bought the the bottles or stole the bottles either one at this point who really knows what this person would do yeah and put the cyanide in them and then put them in the front of the shelves so they would clearly be the first taken mm-hmm. and i think they did this probably early morning well probably some point on the 28th because a couple of the bottles were purchased on the 28th while the others were taken on the were purchased on the 29th so there was video of the, the one girl buying her pills at the Walgreens. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there was video of the person nope. putting them back on the shelves. So this camera at the Walgreens, it actually, it was very interesting because I just randomly read this. And so it's, it's interesting you're asking about it. Um, it was actually a camera that was very specifically used at the checkouts and it wasn't Walgreens's camera. It was the bank's camera because they want, they were recording anyone writing checks. If there was a fraudulent check, then they could go back oh, in the yeah, camera. We used to write checks at stores. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So that was okay. the only reason the camera was in that store. 
Okay, so if, if that murderer didn't go to the register, he wouldn't be on camera. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So while the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office were conducting their test to confirm this cyanide theory, Dr. Kim received a call from the testing facility in Highland Park, and they also confirmed high levels of cyanide. Mm-hmm. By 3 a.m. on September 30th, a local news source, City News, which I don't believe exists anymore. If it does, it's under a different name. They received a tip about these deaths. But they were unable to confirm from authorities that it was Tylenol that was connected to these deaths. And they felt like this was incredibly important, and they kept pushing to see if they could release this news at 5.30 a.m. And they felt they really needed to warn the Chicago area to avoid taking any medications that could result in more deaths. And they did have the ability to release this news first thing in the morning, and immediately many pain medications were removed from shelves. People were discouraged from taking Tylenol. And the public health department actually went door to door in these neighborhoods to inform people about the potential danger. And the police drove through neighborhoods on their bullhorns, telling people to dispose of any Tylenol they may have. Wow. And Okay, I don't remember that. What this kind of reminds me of, which it, it shouldn't, but it does, is Blues Brothers. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, that was a comedy. Exactly. Like, like that's not a good comparison, but, you know, but that's I, what I'm picturing I'm in just, my head. I'm thinking back to the time and, like, where did I work when, right after high school? Um, I did. I worked in an office in Elk Grove Village. Oh, really? But it was in, yeah, that's, that's I worked at several different offices in Elk Grove Village because most of Elk Grove is industrial parks. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of warehouses. It's a lot of big buildings with offices up front. Um yeah, I worked at a place that we uh, were a carpet and flooring distributor, and I did, like, the warehousing paperwork. Oh, kind of some of the stuff I do now with my warehouse. Kind of, <coughs> kind of, yeah. Oh, we hear the puppies. Dog. Yeah, that's my dog, Fanny. She heard a noise, so <laughs> she got nervous. <laughs> yeah, well, Rigby was attacking me during the last episode. Yeah, I, I remember. <laughs> Rigby's always attacking you. Um, but so, some people did turn in their bottles versus throwing them away. And these bottles and bottles were taken off the shelves and these were all tested. And three more bottles were determined to be poisoned. And there was a possibility that a lot more were also poisoned. But since police and the media just urged people to throw them away for their own safety, they would never really know if there were additional bottles. Yeah, yeah, because if they just threw them in the garbage. Mm-hmm. And it was it was one of those things where they felt the need to just get it out of people's hands more than the concern of, oh, keep those, give them to us, we'll test them later. Mm-hmm. They just didn't want to risk yeah. any more deaths. And very quickly, these poisonings became nationwide news. And they had identified only three of the seven victims at this point. And the investigation nearly immediately kind of turned political, which we'll talk a little bit more about in the next episode. But Attorney General Ty Farmer, 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 
Foner. Ty Foner. Foner. Um, was up for re-election. And he is the one who gathered a task force since this these three murders took place in two separate Illinois counties. So there was a lot of jurisdictional issues between these two counties that he he stepped in. He was kind of pushed into creating a task force because he was the attorney general. Um, but he also really pushed to have Tylenol pulled from the shelves nationwide. Because at this point, it, it was really only the Chicago area. But he believed that there was a potential risk everywhere. Well, yeah, and you and to make that judgment call, you may as well err on the side of caution. Well, this, I don't remember the exact number. This recall cost, I want to say, Tylenol $10 million in 1982. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's not inflated numbers for today. It was $10 million in 1982. So this was yeah. a, a big deal, and I'm, I'm kind of surprised Tylenol survived after it. Well, they, they had a lot of drugs that they sell. Yes. Um, but, you know, Tylenol, at that time, everybody had Tylenol in their cabinet. Everybody. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, that would cost them a ton of money and make everybody scared to buy their product. Mm-hmm. And this was also the first massive recall in the United States. Oh, really? Nationwide, huh. this was the first recall of, of that size. Wow. That's interesting. There's a, like, like I was saying earlier, there's a lot of things where, like, this was the first, this changed laws. Like, a lot of stuff happened because of this case. Yeah. All right. Shortly after Ty created the task force, they confirmed that Mary Lynn Reiner and Mary McFarland were also victims of the cyanide poisonings. And at, and once Paula Price's body was found, they were able to quickly determine that she was also a victim. So now all seven victims have been identified and they had to piece together where they all got their bottles of Tylenol and then how cyanide got into their bottles. And as the task force grew, it included members of every type of law enforcement that you can imagine. Um, it had more than 60 people. And they met daily at a police bunker in Des Plaines, which is a, another suburb um, not too far from where all of this happened. And they met first thing in the morning, and then they met again at the end of the day to kind of debrief everything that they had found throughout their kind of independent investigations. I think that's why I remembered that displays had something to do with this. And I was thinking that the, that the victims were from displays, but it was where the task force was staging. Mm -hmm. And I think they also had okay. some, uh, meetings and like offices because this was such a huge task force. I think that displays didn't quite fit them in that police bunker. Um, I think they did a lot of work in Mount prospect as well, which is right next door. Yep. Um, so in the early, uh, one of the early things the task force did was give the families 24-hour surveillance and they took photos of anyone who attended the funerals. They thought that since the victims weren't very specifically selected, that whoever did this might want to see the outcome of their work and maybe they'll mm -hmm. drive by or walk by their homes or attend their funerals. 
Yeah, I think that's a thing that bad people do. It, it's a it's a common thing, especially when there's no direct connection to their victim. Mm-hmm. Especially someone like who souvenir. does this on like a bigger scale. Yeah, I think it's a control thing. I think it's a control thing. Yeah. I think it's a pride thing. Yeah, like I did that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, their yuck. families were all ruled out pretty quickly as suspects. And yeah. there wasn't a specific target that they could identify for the murders. And the task force actually adapted a new computer database that they could put all these different names and license plates into, into to make it easier to be able to search, especially since there's like so many different departments working on this. They could put all of these license plates and names and photos and everything that they've been collecting from the funerals. And they're taking license plates of anyone who drives past the homes, um, trying to see patterns through all of this. Mm -hmm. And so this was a very, very early use of the computer database for law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we did not have, um, I mean, back then I remember one of my first jobs I had, um, no hard drive on a computer. It was a data disk and a program disk, and you had to put them both in in order to run anything. There, there was no such thing as a hard drive. I remember the first computer with hard drive. What year was that? Oh, my gosh. That had to be, gosh, like 84, So a couple 85. years after this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised when so, I saw that they used a, a computer database for this when yeah, I was going through my research. Yeah, back then I worked on what was called Lotus One Two Three, which is now we know as Excel Sheets. Mm -hmm. um, but it was it was a very basic thing, but it, it worked the same as Excel does. I love Excel. I use Excel every day. I, <laughs> I love that stuff. I'm so corny. <laughs> it is so convenient. <laughs> um, but within their first year. They had over 50,000 companies and individuals loaded into this database because they were they were just trying to take any name and every name possible. Yeah. And investigators were trying anything to get information. They even contacted the Soviet Union to see if their spy satellites hmm. were facing towards Chicago at the time of the poisonings. And the, the Soviets agreed to <laughs> wow. help, but their satellites Holy weren't God. facing towards Chicago. Wow. Right? I, I, yeah, I didn't even know that you could do that. <laughs> I didn't know either, but apparently they, they did in 82. <laughs> yeah. So the, the task force was actually able to track where the cyanide was produced. And they determined oh. it was from a lab in Massachusetts in 1978. But unfortunately, this lab did not keep track of exactly where it shipped its cyanide and where it was sold. What do people buy cyanide for? That's a good question. I should probably look that up for this case. I don't know. We'll have to check that out for the next episode. Yeah, I really don't know what it, it could be used for. All I know is it could be very deadly and I don't want it. So It must be like rat poison or something. Yeah, it could potentially be be a poison. It's it's probably there's probably some sort of uh like chemical manufacturing or something that could benefit from cyanide, but I I don't know. Mm. We're going to have to look that up. Yeah, we'll look that up for the next episode. Yeah. 
Um, so investigators, they wanted to investigate Johnson & Johnson employees, thinking that there was a potential connection to the cyanide being added during the manufacturing process of the pills. Hmm. But they were able to rule out this possibility after they determined that the bottles were produced in multiple different areas of the country and then shipped to Chicago. So it'd be kind of almost too big of a conspiracy theory to think that there were numerous people across the country drugging these bottles to all get shipped to Chicago specifically. Yeah, doesn't that quite would make be, sense. Yeah, that would be quite an enterprise. Yeah, and then they also contacted any employees who were fired from Johnson & Johnson, thinking that potentially they had a grudge. But they were mm -hmm. able to rule everyone out and never even considered them persons of interest or suspects. Because hmm. it does sound like it would be logical to be somebody after the company because they weren't going after specific people. Exactly. Um, but they, they were able to essentially rule out tampering during manufacturing or transit yeah. because of all yeah. of this. So really, it had to be somebody going into a store, purchasing the bottles, yeah. and then yeah. putting them back. Yeah. I remember that in the news that when they figured that out, I think, I remember them talking about that and saying that um, they, they knew it wasn't... In, in the manufacturing process, it was someone at a store taking them off the shelf and putting them back on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why um, I believe it was Mary Kellerman and the Janice family, I want to say. They had the same lot number on their bottles, even though they purchased them from two separate locations. So, like, mm -hmm. that's not super uncommon. Like, you, you can make thousands yeah. in one lot and then get it distributed right across a, a, a large area but i think there's a good possibility whoever did this bought two bottles at once and put them back because they mm -hmm. that would guarantee them essentially the same lot number yeah and that might not have even been on their mind they just luck of the draw exactly and that could also it could, it's also entirely possible that both of those locations received received boxes from the same lot because they were very close in location. And they're small locations, so they're not going to get a pallet of Tylenol. They're going to exactly. get a case. Mm -hmm. One case goes to that store, a case goes to that store. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it isn't, you know, like these, like Walmart or Sam's Club. They're, they're small drugstores. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And Jewel Osco was a, a really a grocery store that had a small yes. pharmacy. So, like, they, yeah. they didn't focus on... They, they now have a much larger pharmacy. It's, it's Jewel Osco. But at this time, I think it was just Jewel. There was no... Yeah, there was no pharmacy at the Jewel when I was a kid. Yeah, because Os Osco, um, like, for those of you who aren't from Chicago, it, Jewel Osco, Jewel is grocery, Osco is pharmacy. And they're now, right. like, paired as a company. And, and they're always together now. But at that time in that store on Vale Street in Arlington, where I grew up, um, we had to go to a separate pharmacy to get um, prescriptions. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Jewel would have Tylenol on their shelf. Yeah, just like could, there was no pharmacist. common over-the-counter stuff. Yeah, just over-the-counter. Like if you go into yeah. like 7-Eleven or something now, yeah. they still have like all the, of that little stuff. Exactly. Right. 
Uh, so after all of the interviews and ruling out any potential suspects, the task force decided to use a newly developed FBI tactic. They brought in profilers. And this is one of the earliest uses of FBI profiling. Which is, again, this case hmm. kind of like is groundbreaking in a lot of different ways. Yes. Yeah, because profiling, I don't remember it being around back then. Yeah, this was, this was, I think it was in use, but this is one of like the bigger cases that they brought it in on at this time. Yeah. And unfortunately, because there's very little to kind of know about the suspect, because these were very kind of sporadic and random killings over a pretty good geographical space, but in a very short period of time. Um, they kind of developed a few theories on traits from this person, but when we're kind of looking at it in retrospect now, they're very common traits. Um, but they believe the suspect was male and that he likely suffered from mental health issues (laughs) and he likely had a history of harming animals and he was currently enjoying the national attention that he was getting for these crimes. So yeah. that's that's a very kind of generic It is generic, profile. but it's true. It's accurate. Well, <laughs> this is kind of when they were discovering that those were very common things among serial killers. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So this to them was like mind-blowing ideas. But we've come to learn over the years that this is this is a very common trend. Um, it's often called the trifecta. And they believe that he, once he was potentially tired of the attention, or after the attention had dissipated from the news, that he would likely try to step in and contact investigators, whether this was to taunt him or help them solve the case and identify him. A variety of different things, but they thought that he would actually come forward in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And as we were talking about a little earlier, and we'll go in depth next time, he did. Potentially. We we don't know if that was actually him, but we think it is. Super creepy. And again, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, I very strongly recommend reading and listening to the Chicago Tribune coverage of this case um they've done so much work in everything to pull this together over the last 42 years um and a large majority of my research came from them they they they've done a really great series of articles that are very in-depth starting with the victims the investigation and then the the one suspect and then another suspect and then how it impacted the country so I definitely recommend yeah, so many them things out. changed. Yeah, we'll have yeah. it linked um, below. They they have um, a whole page called the Tylenol Murders Read the Tribune Investigation, where they link just a ton of different articles that they've written over the years. Um, so I highly recommend it. Please check it out because th- this is scratching the surface of this case. There's a whole lot more that I didn't talk about because I'm yeah, doing this. I, in I two can't episodes. wait to hear the rest. It is. It's. It's. Um, intriguing and it'll be much more interesting next episode too because this was just kind of laying the foundation when you get more into really who they think potentially did this 
It, it's very, very interesting. Um, but this is where we're going to leave this episode for this week. Um, so next week we will talk about the suspects. Um, and since this is all still unsolved, it, it they're just suspects, even though investigators have a pretty solid idea of who they believe did it. Um, but anything that you want to say before we sign off? Um, no, not really. I, I want to thank you for having me. This was really fun. I was super nervous um, to do this because I've never done anything like this before. But Sam, you made it easy and it was really enjoyable. Thanks for asking me. Well, this is kind of like what we do before I record with Kelly. <laughs> kind of tell you the case <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you and I talk about just about every case you you do so um plus a whole lot of other ones so we talk about this stuff all the time yeah so we just had a microphone in front of us this time yeah exactly yeah it was super fun thank you for jumping on um and kelly greatly appreciates it um oh i'm happy to fill in and then we'll we'll figure out a time to record part two um yeah thank you all for listening to have you heard about this case if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a review on apple podcasts and you can find us on Instagram at Have You Heard About This Case Pod, on TikTok at HYHATC, or you can email us at Have You Heard About This Case at gmail.com. Thanks, and we'll talk to you later.